I hope you brought your Bibles or you have your Bibles on your phone. Used to, I could say, hold up your Bibles and everybody would hold up the Bibles, but can't do that anymore. Turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 8. This is on the third missionary journey of Paul. Paul entered the synagogue, spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them, and he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? This is just a side note. I think this is one of the funny spots of the Bible. Uh, here's a guy, you know, who's casting out demons and the demons say, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who in the world are you? Uh, I, I'm sorry, I just have a weird sense of humor. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. And he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That, I think, is also kind of funny. But when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear in the name of the Lord. Jesus was held in high honor. And many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And in this way, the, Lord, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. And after I'd been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. And he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, where he stayed in the province of Asia a little while longer. Now, why in the world did I read you that? Because the full armor of God, as Dale has referred to, that, you know, if you haven't picked up on the theme, uh, you haven't been singing. The full armor of God is found in the book of Ephesians. And Paul is writing to the people that he's had this experience. Did you notice what had happened there? Did you notice what? These people were practicing sorcery. They were doing all kinds of things that were against what God would want them to do. And they were basically satanic. And so it makes more sense when we read that passage and we come back here and we realize that Satan is doing everything he can to destroy you. We've talked about that for several weeks. And he comes to Ephesians five, 6 and verse 12. 
And he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces in heavenly realms. Paul is thinking about this experience that he had in Ephesus as he, as he writes this book to the Ephesians. And he says, you know, our battle here is not a battle that you can really see. It's, it's one of, of a battle for the existence of your soul. And so it's best that we take it seriously. The New Testament, interestingly, ad- identifies this struggle that we have as a war. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. And you remember Paul's talk of doing what he doesn't want to do and and not doing what he wants to do. He comes along and he says, but I see another law at work at me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Waging war. Isn't it interesting the language that Paul uses? In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1, He says, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold to you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war. There's that language again as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Paul, in talking to Timothy, says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them you might fight the battle well holding on to the faith and a good conscience with some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. He encourages Timothy to fight the battle. You're engaged in this war, he says. So this is serious. We come to this. He says in 1 Timothy again, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is a war for our very being. And if it weren't serious, I don't think the writers would use such language. Well, I'd like for you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time today. This is where we find the full armor of God. Starting in verse 10. Finally, brothers. And and it's interesting to me. um, If you you are a student of 
the Apostle Paul, you'll see he uses that word like a preacher. Finally. Now here, he's actually finally about done. But a lot of times he uses the finally before he's really, I mean, he says, and by the way, you know, he'll keep going. Uh, you know, uh, be, be wary of people who use the terms finally and in conclusion. I'm not going to say that today. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the forces of, of evil in the heavenly realms. And therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, I want you to see something. I don't know if you saw it the first reading, but I want you to see something. Take your stand. Take your stand. Listen to how many times he says it. Finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And he says our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. And he picks it up there in 13. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that the, when, the, when the day of evil comes, you may stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. And then he says, stand firm. Four times he says, I want you to stand. I want you to stand your ground. How many times in the, in the, in the, in the face of withering attacks by Satan and his flaming arrows, do we fail to stand? And I'm not saying that you have the strength, that I have the strength, but the strength comes from the word of the Lord. The strength comes from Jesus himself. And he says, I want you to stand. But you remember Paul's experience in Ephesus. For our fight is not against flesh and blood. Really, the full armor of God here that we read at the end of Ephesians is the outline of the book of Ephesians. Except it's in reverse order. I want us to look at that today. He says, I want you to put on the belt of truth. And really, from Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8 through chapter 6 and verse 9, he talks about truth. You see, the belt holds everything up. It's the foundation, isn't it? I got to tell you, you see me pulling up my pants you know, sometimes. It's because the belt's not doing its work. But really, the word belt is not really used in Scripture here. 
In fact, if you read the King James, it says, I want you to gird up your loins. And the image is, what they would do, you've seen the, the pictures of the long flowing robes, and what they would do, they would pass the, the end of it through their legs, and they would cinch it around their waist so that they didn't have their hands with anything else. They were ready. They were ready for battle. They were ready for anything that comes. Paul says they were once in darkness in this passage, but he says, now you live as children of light. What are children of light? What is that? That's truth. He has a whole discussion about light in this passage. John 1 says, Jesus is the light, and in him is no darkness. And when describing what a Christian's life is about, Jesus said it's like a, a city set on a hill. We sing the song, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. He tells us that truth is light, and truth will always have an impact. You tell me anywhere that you've been in darkness that light hasn't had an impact. As followers of Jesus, we are to have or we are to make an impact. It's part of what standing is all about. And he finishes this passage in Ephesians with this, to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. King James says spiritual songs. And you can only describe those as truth. What we sang today was truth. And he says, what I want you to do is to preach to one another, to, for lack of a better term. I want you to talk to one another with words of truth. Then he says, I want you to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Really from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through chapter 5 and verse 7, Paul makes a, a huge contrast between the old self and the new self. And remember in 1 Corinthians, there's a whole list of bad things. And Paul comes back and says, and such were some of you. I believe it's in this passage that Paul uses the term in the ways that you used to live. You see this breastplate of righteousness here, and Paul is specific. If you read in chapter 4, starting in verse 25, he says, Therefore, each of you must put away falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. There's that truth again, isn't it? For we are all members of one body, and in your anger don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up 
others according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must be no hint, even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people nor should there be any obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place but rather thanksgiving for of this you can be sure no immoral impure or greedy person such a person is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of of christ and of god and let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Wow, when you read all of that, what's he talking about? He's talking about righteousness. He's talking about the way we should live. He's talking about, really it's a description of the Christian life. And if you want to know what righteousness is all about, read this passage sometime. Keep it near you and go over it and say, am I doing any of these? Paul says, you need to put on that breastplate of righteousness. Then he says, I want you to put on good shoes. Feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We've been using this year as a theme, transformation. Christianity is the story of going from chaos to peace, from hostility to love. You see, the whole thing started When we read the Old Testament, we had God's chosen people. They were his pride and joy. They were his chosen ones, his select people. And as we come through, he picked the the Jewish nation to bring into, into view Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, it was open to all the gospel was open to all. One of my favorite songs, and we never sing it anymore. From one the Lord has made the race, through one has come the call. And he says, the blessed gospel is for all. Aren't you glad that it came through this? This is exactly what Paul went through because the Jewish nation didn't like the fact that Paul was preaching to the Gentile. He would go to the synagogues. They would like what they heard for a while, but when he started this heresy of it's open to all, they'd kick him out. They chased him around. When you read chapter 4, starting in verse 14, 
you hear what he says. He says, I don't want to read from three. Anybody have that problem? Your pages stick together. He says, then we'll no longer be infants. Tossed about, blown here and there by every wind of the teaching, by the cunning of craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. And instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. And from him, the whole body, joined and held together in every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. He says, what happens is you come together. You come together in unity. And he says, that's the gospel of peace. Then he says, I want you to carry the shield of faith. Here are the things that protect us from Satan's arrows. We're saved by grace. We've talked about that over and over in this church. Nothing that we have done can merit the fact that he has saved us. We are God's workmanship, it says in that passage. The word that we use there, again, we've talked about this as poema, which says we are God's poem. We are the thing that God writes. And we are created in Christ Jesus. And we are to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Then he comes to the helmet of salvation. Satan tries to get in our heads, doesn't he? He tries to get in our heads. He tries to make us doubt. You're too stupid. No one loves you. You don't deserve to be happy. You're useless. You're a bad person. Remember Paul's cry in Romans? He said, oh, what a wretched man I am. See, that was Satan trying to get in his head. And Paul says, I want you to wear the helmet of salvation. And right out of the chute, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. I like that word lavished. He, the, the word is used over in, in 1 John. See how great a love the Father has lavished upon us. And he talks about God's grace and how he lavishes it on us. And that's a promise that is made to you. And notice Paul mentions at the end of all of this, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's the only offensive weapon that's named. We need to be careful with it. Hebrews chapter 4 says, For the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. 
and it penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Sometimes people use the word of God as a weapon against each other. And I don't think that's what it was intended to, to be used for. It was intended to be used as a weapon against Satan. And I want you to notice one other thing. Notice that there is no armor for the backside. There's nothing to protect your back. There's nothing to protect the back of your legs. There's nothing to protect anything like that. Because he said it at the very beginning. He said, I want you to make your stand against the devil. There are no weapons for retreat. And so Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes.